The Walluna Solution by Dave Goddard Synopsis Who is Jessie Croft? Why has she disappeared from Walluna? What is the mystery behind the mesmerising eyes? In Seeking Answers, Kalgoorlie Detective Inspector Greg Johnson finds his way of life and the lives of his three daughters and grandchildren threatened. He also learns a great deal about the significance of Walluna as a gold mining and cattle centre, as the railhead for the Canning stock route, and as a site for competing Aboriginal and European histories. And he comes to understand that love and caring for people and justice can transcend extraordinary boundaries. Preface The characters and events in this story are fictional, but the setting and most facts on Waluna and the Goldfields region are as accurate as I can make them. The town and region have appealed for years. In 1984, I was appointed principal of Willuna Government School, a position I never took up. My first visit to the town was in February 1999, driving from Kalgoorlie. Incongruity was my first sense. The old school seemed to be held up by piles of emu bitter cans from the one hotel in town, the club, directly opposite. Dirt streets, ramshackle buildings, a truck recklessly spraying mosquitoes, and some of the loveliest people I'd ever met added to that sense. The same sense of incongruity was present during an evening meal in the decrepit-looking club. A good steak, great red, and photos of the town in the 1930s. I was fascinated by a main street teeming with black cars, Ford trucks, electric light and telephone poles, as in Perth, and a town filled with shops, theatres, dance halls, hotels and banks. My imagination stirred. Historical embers began to glow. And the Walloon solution smouldered. But it remained a gradual awakening. I was introduced to W.J. Peasley's story of the last of the nomads, when Wari and Yatunga and their family emerged in 1977, as, to the best of my knowledge, the last Aboriginal people in Australia to meet non-Aboriginal people. I was also privileged to gradually learn Aboriginal history from the lovely, lively Aboriginal people of Willuna Town, Kutkabuba and Bondini, and those working in Willuna Remote Community School and Nanganawili Aboriginal Health Service. Non-Aboriginal history is extensively presented in Pat Hyden's work, Willuna the edge of the desert, and I learned much from it, about the Canning stock route and the impact of gold, the Depression and World War II, all affecting the lives of people and the waxing and waning of Willuna's fortunes. But I also walked the town a lot, coming to know it as it is today, and being introduced, almost by osmosis, to the original township. The old hospital, which is now the Shire offices, what's left of the old school opposite the club hotel, and an area over the road from the new school which at first appeared barren. It was that area that caused the sparks and smouldering to become flames. Tracks that were once streets, the remains of houses in the form of concrete slabs, stone fences, corrugated tin shards peeping out of the pendant soil, and poles that were once gates, or the remains of fences or washing lines. These hinted at the varied styles of buildings present 
in the pre-war era, the heyday of the town, as it rose above the effects of the Great Depression. I've tried to be true to the geography of the town and various businesses, agencies and social entities that exist or existed. There are two glaring exceptions. The name of the main gold mine, although it is the surname of the man who revived Willuna's mining fortunes before World War II, and Paddy Moran, named a singer in the band Nuts Harrison and His Willunatics. I've also been as precise as possible about the canning stock route as it nears Willuna and the locations of wells and cattle stations. It's a rich history. The Maru language group Ribbon of Life woven through the region for tens of thousands of years. Non-indigenous interventions in that Ribbon of Life for economic gain and the conflict arising from the clash of the two histories and cultures and their different methods of survival. In terms of Aboriginal peoples, I have the strong belief, which is echoed in all my writings, they must become, and be permitted to become, joint participants in determining their futures, with the authority and responsibility to do so. If that doesn't happen for whatever reasons, the alternative is their assimilation into whitefellow ways and the loss of their culture, dating back tens of thousands of years. Is the loss of Aboriginal cultures a desired or deserved outcome? For all the Aboriginal peoples I've worked with, particularly older ones, it isn't, and I totally agree. I dedicate this novel to two groups, to the Madu people, as traditional owners of the country around Waluna and stretching north as far as Newman, for their acceptance of me, their friendship, and the things they've helped me to learn, and to my family for all their love, encouragement and support. Dave Goddard, 31st of the 4th, 2015. Charlie Hendon's Diary, Saturday, 15th of December, 1934. I've done many haircuts and shaves this week. All that those in the chair talk about were events over the past couple of weeks. As I gave Mavis and Michael each a kiss tonight and tucked them into bed, I was emotional. Alma asked me what was wrong and I said I didn't know. But I did. The cyclone last Wednesday cooled the whole town. My pastoralists smile and filled Lake Violet so we can all cavort and swim for a while. But it also cuts us off from the will for several weeks at a time when other events have created vast issues and concerns. The report of the deaths of two stockmen from poison water at Well 3 on the Canning Stock Route was bad enough. Then there was the murder of four natives at West Camp last Saturday afternoon. I knew from the meeting at the club hotel the same day that feelings were running high and most people in town blamed the natives for the poisoning of the water. I don't believe they did. And neither does Mr O'Halloran, the Rhodes Board President. Why would these people desecrate their own water holes? May above anyone in this region understand the need for water, how to preserve and keep the limited supplies pure. But it's as if the police aren't concerned about these four deaths. The acting officer in charge, Williams, came for a shave on Monday lunchtime, said he had no leads, and none of those he'd questioned had information either. But I wonder how hard he's trying to solve the case, given his attitude to natives. I understand, however, that a group of men, rumoured to be led by Jacko, Wally and Grabber, went to West Camp on Saturday afternoon. 
We know all the natives at the camp are abused verbally and physically, and that four deaths resulted. But we don't know if any members of the group who went to the camp have been questioned. Then we learn later on Tuesday morning of the disappearance of five senior Matu men. Mother Mary Joseph and Jessica Dunn, who were buying food to feed the refugees from the north and east camps, told me the families of the men who disappeared came to the convent early in the morning in a dreadful state, claiming that two men carrying rifles and wearing hoods over their faces raided two camps late on Monday night. They took the senior men at gunpoint, threatening anyone who followed with violence. Finally, there are no concerns about acting OIC Williams. He visited Well One and Kanya Station on Sunday evening. The visit to Well One was apparently to take statements from the recently arrived stockman from the Canning Stock Route, who'd lost two colleagues, and then to interview the Kanya Station owner about events on Saturday afternoon. They returned Monday morning, visited me, but then apparently left again soon after, heading north. He hadn't returned by Tuesday morning, and no one knew precisely where he'd gone. It's also reported that Jacko and Wally are missing, and rumours are rife. One is that acting OIC Williams struck a deal with Jacko and Wally, and fled town with a share of the gold that the other two had apparently been pilfering from Debanali's mine. The same rumour suggests the poisoning of Well Three, the murders at West Camp, and the disappearance of Matu elders were actions to divert attention from gold-stealing and the subsequent profitable disappearance of acting OIC Williams, Jacko and Wally. There must be a sense in what is happening. My difficulty at the moment is working out what it is. The town feels leaderless, cut off from the outside world, trapped in a vice of innuendo, rumour and fear, and no one has any idea what to do next. Part 1 Ringing sounds and whistling noises accompanied by regular thudding rode over the top of coughs, murmurs and mumblings, and the cacophony faded in and out like shortwave radio. Grainy, flickering, skewed images rolled and tumbled in his brain, like a badly tuned black-and-white television set. Images of a corrugated iron fence, a wire gate, people in a dusty laneway, and a screeching Aboriginal man. Greg's head pulsed to the incessant, rhythmical throbbing, like waking with a hangover. He tried to open his eyes, but the rolling, tumbling images wouldn't let him. It was like they wanted to be the only things he could see, and they were making him feel nauseous. And gradually, the piercing short-wave noises began to wheeze, and he sensed that the rhythmical throbbing wasn't just his head. It was too metrical for that. The sound was from outside his body. Even so, he still felt internal pounding, as if a hammer were hitting inside the back of his skull. Finally, a thought as a question, emerged from among the jumbled images and he managed to clarify it. When was I drinking and with whom? He tried again to open his eyes, managed for a moment, saw light and felt blinded by it. He clamped his eyes shut and moaned as the rolling, tumbling images resumed. His stomach was rebelling, gurgling like he wanted to throw up, but he couldn't. He just lay wishing he could, so he'd feel better. He felt something wipe his forehead, which was cooling. He would have liked more of it, but it didn't happen. The mumbling and murmuring grew a bit louder, and for a time 
the flickering grainy images eased. That made him feel marginally better, although he continued to lie perfectly still for some minutes, in case movement caused the earlier sensations to resume. Perhaps he slept for a little while, he wasn't sure, but was soon aware again of his world rattling and pounding and his stomach turning over. He still kept his eyes closed when a wet towel smoothed his forehead. As it did, words became discernible, and the conversation became comprehensible. Uh, so how old is he, Senior Constable? The speech sounded slurred, but he couldn't work out why. Perhaps the pounding was causing it, as may happen to a CD being played in a car on a corrugated road. His birth date is the 5th of December, 1907. The accent was clipped in upper-class English. As I recall, there's a 50% chance that in a room of 25 people, two will share a birthday. Now why think of that? Greg wondered, as his mind jolted from one thing to another, as if reacting to the pounding. He has a birthday in a week's time, then. The 5th of December. That's my birthday. That's why I thought about that statistic. Anyway... I better have a drink with the poor old bugger. The papers I received say it's twenty-sixth doctor, so it's his twenty-seventh birthday on Wednesday. The clipped accent was more accentuated. What do you mean, twenty-six? That can't be right. He's nearly a hundred. Where's he from? Again, according to his papers, northern, and he applied to come here. I've recorded that information, Doctor and Senior Constable, the female voice stated. Who are they talking about? Craig wondered. As a towel wiped his face and forehead again. The coolness made him feel as good as he'd felt for a while. He was about to open his eyes when his stomach violently rebelled. He threw up everywhere. Get him on his side, Matron, immediately to make sure he doesn't swallow his own vomit. Again, it was the voice that had seemed to slur. I'm aware of what to do, Doctor. It was a thin, nasally strident voice. He found himself being unceremoniously turned onto his side. Let us know when you've cleaned him up, Nurse Lacey. The English voice sounded mocking as Greg heard two sets of footsteps departing. He kept his eyes closed as he was eased onto his back again but then forced to a sitting position by two sets of hands. Whatever he was wearing was stripped over his head. It's very attractive to look at, sister. Who's she looking at? He must be in the next bed. Keep your mind on the job, Nurse Lacey. A thin, nasally strident voice stated. Nurses do not ogle the customers, particularly police officers. What's going on? He mused as another garment was slipped over his head and body, and he was lowered again. Was it me she was ogling? At my age, and given the shape I'm in, why would she? Tell Dr. Wright and Senior Constable Williams they can return, nurse. Matron says you can return, Dr. and Senior Constable. The other female voice called. I meant to go and invite them back, not shriek like a fishwife. The thin voice hissed. Two sets of footsteps clumped. 
I assume he arrived by train today, Senior Constable? He's definitely slurring, Greg decided. But who are they saying arrived by train today? Who's the hundred-year-old fart they keep mentioning? That's what we were expecting, Doctor, yes. The English accent was clearly discernible. For a few moments there was silence except for the non-stop thudding. I'm still surprised, the English voice finally stated, that when the battery stops at midday on Saturdays, the silence is intrusive and deafening. What battery? And why is it important? If he arrived by train, why was he unconscious in the laneway behind Mr. O'Grady's? I thought we'd been through that idiocy with the Reverend. The first part of the sentence took Greg's attention. He had a jagged flash of memory at the mention of laneway. He lay still, but was now more alert. I'd ordered Constable Dickens to meet him at the train station as part of train duty, the cultured English voice replied. But he was held up in court and arrived late. I'd say someone at the railway station saw the disturbance, pointed it out to Constable Graham, and, like all members of our esteemed police force, he took immediate action. I heard he was knocked unconscious when a darkie accosted him. Means that one person on each of the last two trains into Waluna has been attacked and had luggage stolen, Doctor. Well, I'm in Waluna. That's good. But what's this stuff about a train and a 26-year-old police officer named Constable Graham? Do you have any idea who's perpetrating the crimes, Senior Constable? It will have been darkies looking for money or clothes. Are you sure? Why would they attack Reverend Brophy, who has been such a help to them? The pronunciation remained slurred. I just told you, Doctor. Looking for money or clothes? I understand Jessica Dunn was on the Reverend's train, returning to teach the convent, senior, and saw some of what happened. She maintains white men were involved. The name Jessica took Greg's attention, but he couldn't recall why. We know Miss Dunn is very, let's say, protective of blacks, and she'll swear none was near the Reverend. The English tone was mocking again. Where has she been, Miss Lazy? That doctor has trouble with siblings. I do too, when I'm pissed. Greg pondered. But that wouldn't be why he does. Or would it? She left town around June for personal reasons, doctor? The nurse replied. But the sisters are delighted she's returned. Well, I'm pleased for them. But a returning minister and a new police officer should be welcomed, not attacked, and the future capital of Western Australia's senior constable Williams. As acting officer in charge, Doctor, I assure you that attending to assaults is a top priority. With due respect to him, Sergeant Rice, as OIC, was far too lenient with the natives, and I'm certain that accounts for a good deal of the problems we face, whatever Miss Dunn may say. I'll make sure the letter of the law is imposed to the fullest. I'm pleased to hear it, Senior Constable. Now, Nurse Lacey, I need an admission form completed for this man. I've done one, Doctor, the nurse replied, and her hand gently patted Greg's chest. 
His constable, Gregory Cram. The senior constable gave me all the details when he arrived. Jesus, it's me they're talking about. Why do they think I'm Constable Gregory Graham? I'm Detective Inspector Greg Johnson of the Magnificent CIB, or Kalgoorlie Criminal Investigation Branch. Well, it's what we used to call it. He's been called their detective office since the new bloke took over about three years ago. But he's OK. And I like the name he has for that rock band he's in. The Filth, I think he calls it. Well, when Constable Graham wakes, bathe him and give him brandy. Do you think brandy is appropriate? The clipped English accent made it sound like a command. But the doctor was up to the task. Senior Constable, I'll leave solving crime and keeping order in this town to you if you leave defining medical procedures and treatment to me. Yes, Doctor. I'll get someone to ring you when Constable Graham is ready to leave our care, Senior Constable. Now I have matters to attend to in my office. Good idea, sir. Footsteps receded. Greg heard the English voice say softly, I dare say we both know what matters need attention in his office, nurse. He heard the woman chuckle. Matron Flasher says he's a good doctor, and he's good for this new hospital. It's possible, nurse, that Matron is afflicted with the same pressing issues that the doctor has, as well as a sense of adoration beyond medical loyalty. I must ask you to leave, Senior Constable, so I can observe Constable Graham. What a pity, Nurse Lacey. I enjoy your company. We'll have to find a time to meet soon. Perhaps at a dance? As the sound of boots receded, Greg slowly opened his eyes to a blurred image of a pressed tin ceiling, which consisted of repeated patterns in small squares. It was, as he recalled, in his grandmother's house in Victoria Park. Can you hear me, Constable Graham? He lowered his eyes, and her face eventually came into focus. Pretty, and surrounded by neat-trimmed and pinned red hair under a white nurse's cap, with a small red cross. What's going on? I'm not Constable Gregory Graham. What the hell is happening? She wiped sweat from his face with a towel, then found him and he smiled. So hot and he wondered why the air conditioning wasn't on. She leaned forward to towel him again, and he noticed that the shoulders and sleeves of her blouse had small blue and white checks covered by a white pinafore with a small red cross, just like a cap. She was dressed differently from nurses at Kalgoorlie Regional Hospital. I heard you from Northam, she stated. He was about to tell her how wrong she was, but stilled his reply. Instead, images flickered of a boyhood in the Avon Valley that included two years in Northam. Well, the way Nurse Lacey dressed and wore her hair told him to agree until he knew more. Why did you ask the transfer to Waluna, Constable? He grinned, shrugged, winced, all in the same moment. Sorry, she smiled. Shouldn't ask questions of you tonight with that lump on the back of your head. Whoever hit you did a good job. Greg peered cautiously in both directions, through a ward of a dozen beds, mostly occupied. All were on wrought iron frames with casters. They looked nothing like beds he knew at Kalgoorlie Hospital, with stainless steel parts operated by remote control, 
He'd watched Dorderlees in Kalgoorlie last week when Michael Jagala was admitted after a brawl behind the Albion Hotel. They'd flick switches on the remote control to raise the lower parts of a mobile bed that moved silently and easily on large solid rubber tyres. Finally, he looked out a window at the far end of the ward to an area filled with an assortment of different housing. What's that constant thudding I can hear, nurse? Can you turn it off? She giggled. No. It's a state battery. All mining towns have one to extract gold. This one operates six days a week, 24 hours a day. He glanced with a smile. Do you have a mirror I can look in, nurse? She giggled again. What else would you use a mirror for? He smiled. And this time, didn't wince. I get you one. She patted his chest before walking to the lead-like bat-wing doors of the ward. He watched her swaying movements and felt a sense of arousal. It had been a long time since watching a woman walk had stirred him as easily. As she disappeared from view, his eyes returned to the pressed tin, trying to recall recent events. It was as if he had snippets of a dream to sequence into a logical whole, but some bits didn't seem to connect as if they were from different dreams. He recalled standing at the rear corner of a large grey brick house built on what looked like a vast concrete slab, but everything was totally silent and still. He stared at himself and then his surrounds in absolute amazement. He was dressed in a strange uniform, his navy blue coat having a high collar done up at the neck, highly polished silver buttons on the jacket, and navy blue trousers that tapered noticeably to the ankles and boots. He made to lift his docker's cap and scratch his head, which he did when thinking. But instead of that cap, he felt something hard with a peak. He knew it was a forage cap, took it off and gazed at it. It had a hard black peak, a soft white top, and a thick black band around the crown to which was attached a gleaming circular police badge. The badge was familiar, and he instinctively felt in a breast pocket for his glasses. As he did, he realised he didn't need them. He could see the badge clearly, and was able to read the words. He'd worn reading glasses since he was in his late thirties, but now, suddenly, they weren't needed. He remembered the badge because he'd worn it when he first joined the WA Police Force, as it was called then, in 1973. The badge was called the Bottle Top, and it clearly stated Western Australian Police, inside a laurel wreath topped by a crown. He rubbed his head thoughtfully and jumped. He felt thick hair rather than a thinning pate. He felt again for confirmation. Yes, it was thick hair. Slowly, he replaced the cap, shaking his head in bewilderment. Why is it so quiet and still? Where are the people? And if they're here, who are they? To his right, concrete steps led up to what he assumed was a back door to a veranda, while behind him an entrance like those for storm cellars in the midwest of the United States stood at thirty degrees from the horizontal. He moved cautiously from the cellar entrance towards the right rear corner of the house, silence and stillness accompanying him. 
That corner was at ground level, below the concrete slab, and it looked like a bedroom or sleep-out, probably with a timber floor and sheets of canvas hanging down to protect against the weather had been added. As he was about to peer inside, the sound of voices yelling abuse shattered the silence, along with a gusty wind raising clouds of dust. Footsteps thudded. He turned to a fence of corrugated iron along the rear of the property, with a wire gate in the middle. Beside the wire gate, a toilet was against the fence. As he moved towards the noise, an Aboriginal man dressed in baggy trousers and a dirty shirt, and obviously scared, grabbed the wire gate from outside, shook it viciously to try and open it. When that failed, he began to climb. His hands were over the top when he was grabbed. He screamed something in an Aboriginal language. Don't ship me, you thieving black bastard! A voice yelled as the Aboriginal man was torn from the gate. You took clothes from Wally's washing line, you dirty black prick! Greg's police instincts kicked in. He ran to the back gate to find a chain holding the gate to a supporting fence post. There was, however, no lock on the chain, so he was able to pull it loose from the post. The Aboriginal man continued screeching in his language, broken occasionally by thudding sounds like fists hitting flesh. Greg wrenched the gate open and ran into a laneway that serviced toilets at the back of a range of dwellings. Two white men and the Aboriginal man were visible, I'll teach you, you bloody dead-head black shit. A thin, very tall white man was holding the Aboriginal man by the wrists, dragging his arms behind him and forcing him to face the ground. The other white man, a rotund, short, balding man, was flailing savagely with his fists. Stop it now, Greg yelled. Let the man go. Are you constable? The thin white man retorted. A nigger lover? Hit him again, Jacko, and make it good. I said, let him go, Greg roared, moving quickly towards the three men. Probably because of Greg's size, Jacko bolted, leaving his companion holding the still-screaming Aboriginal man. Heads peered around toilets, sheds, or where they existed, over back fences. As Jacko ran down the lane, four more Aboriginal men appeared, carrying what looked like clubs or sticks racing to the aid of their companion. "'Jesus Christ!' Jacko blurted as he spun and ran back up the laneway. "'Get out of here, Wally! The whole tribe's here to help the black shit!' Wally swung the Aboriginal man away from him, and the two white men headed through a gap in a fence, away from the approaching support group. Greg moved to the Aboriginal men running to assist their companion. "'Help your friend,' they commanded. Don't chase. I'll catch them. Two Aboriginal men ran to help the victim, while two came closer to Greg. They stared for a while, threateningly waving the clubs they held and yelling in language before returning to help with the beaten man. As the five Aboriginal men made their way down the lane towards a large white building with a red roof in the distance, Greg went to the gap in the fence where Wally and Jacko had disappeared. He saw an outhouse, a shed, and beyond both, a grey brick house. Moving tentatively into the area, he peered at the shed, which was large enough to hide the two men. His last memory was passing the outhouse and heading towards the shed, and then everything went black, 
until the voices he'd just heard. Nurse Lacey passed him an oval-shaped mirror with a pink handle and frame. It was the type he recalled seeing on his grandmother's dresser as a child. He gratefully accepted it, closed his eyes, tentatively held it in front of his face, and took a deep breath before looking. Even for his attempts to remain calm, he couldn't suppress a gulp. He was the face of a man he'd known in 1977, a good-looking young man, tanned with a full head of dark hair and no wrinkles. He gulped again, lowered the mirror, and stared at the bedspread. Are you all right? Nurse Lacey asked, placing a palm on his forehead before wiping his skin with a damp towel. He nodded without looking at her. Do you know who you are? she asked. After a pause, he spoke hesitantly. I'm de... I mean, I'm constable... He paused, sorting his mind, before concluding with, Greg Graham? Do you know where you are? This time he glanced questioningly. I think I'm in Waluna in a hospital next to a state battery, whatever that is. All I know is it sounds like drums that will keep me awake all night. She laughed. I could have sworn you would have said you were dreaming of dancing at the Ambassadors with Jimmy Preston playing the drums. She wiped his face again and smiled coquettishly. The state battery, Constable, is where rocks containing gold ore are crushed and gold is extracted. When you leave here, go and see how the battery works. She patted his chest and gave him a becoming glance. It's nearly sundown. I think you should settle down and spend the night with us here in Waluna Hospital. That way, you soon get a meal with a tot of brandy. Have a good sleep. Get a reasonable breakfast. And then you can go and bring law and order to this town. Well, at least I'm in the town I'm supposed to be, he thought. He handed her the mirror, and her look hadn't changed, so he grinned. His grin was a trademark that had the effect of changing perceptions of speaking with a dour police inspector intent only on solving crime, to chatting with a warm human being with a sense of humour that quickly brought laughter. Lights had been switched off an hour earlier, but Greg wasn't asleep. Even the liberal tot of brandy hadn't made him feel dozy. The pressed tin ceiling and whirring of overhead fans had become constant companions. Lights from inside the hospital peeped under ward doors, while those from the outside shone in through windows. They faintly illuminated the room, assisting to keep Greg awake, along with the snores and farts of fellow inmates. He continued trying to reconcile his thoughts about what had been happening before he'd been whacked. Right now, only two things were clear. He was a policeman named Greg, and he was in Maluna. <laughs>